This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even the complicated ones that might be dividing your own family. Well, as we head into the holiday weekend, we want to take a broad look at foreign policy right now around the world. It has been nine months since Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and U.S. officials say some 40,000 civilians have been killed in this conflict, more than 200,000 military deaths on the Russian and Ukrainian sides. Is there any end in sight? Well, the prevailing U.S. opinion is that the two countries are far from sitting down for any peace talks. We want to bring in someone who has been covering the region for many years. Ann Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and author of many award-winning books about Russia and beyond, including Gulag, which won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for taking a little time for us. Sure. Delighted. Anne, I'd, I'd really love to dig in with you and, and a recent article in The Atlantic that you wrote. Um, and the headline just grabs you, The Russian Empire Must Die. What exactly are you referring to and, and why must it die? The Russian Empire is really a state of mind as much as a as much as a reality. And it's one of the reasons, well, it's really the the primary central reason for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, this idea that Russia is a culture that has a special role to play in history, that it's superior to all of its neighbors, that it's allowed to destroy, to attack, um, to to Russify, uh, to undermine all of the civilizations around it. Um, that it's allowed to, um, that, it, that it has carte blanche to do what it wants with its neighbors and also with its internal minorities is a mentality that goes back hundreds of years. Um, Russia began as a small um, small settlement around Muscovy and then expanded to the size that it is today, not by accident. And it's this mentality, this mentality of conquest, this mentality of constant violence, this mentality of repression, not at home and abroad, that has to end in order for Russia to become a modern state, to become a modern European state that reflects and understands, um, you know, that respects borders um, and that it's possible to live with in a normal way alongside its neighbors. How do you defeat a mindset? I mean, is there precedent for, for that, especially one that has existed for so long? Lots and lots of precedents. I mean, you know, Britain was an empire. France was an empire. Uh, they're not empires anymore. Um, why? Because there was a mental change inside, uh, a mentality change rather, inside their elites and, and, and more broadly, um, because the people of those countries decided that it wasn't, um, it wasn't either morally or economically or politically advantageous anymore to spread outwards. And they decided to become instead European states, you know, within a European structure. Uh, and Russia can make that transformation too. It just hasn't done it yet. Why do you see this moment and this conflict in Ukraine as part of the, the journey for that kind of transformation? Because the conflict in Ukraine is a genuine disaster, not just for the Ukrainians, but also for the Russians. It's an economic disaster. It's a political disaster. It's been accompanied by a huge uptick in internal repression, both um, at the beginning of the war, Putin banned a whole series of independent organizations, independent media um, since the war started, uh, the, the, he's had to announce a, a mobilization, a draft, uh, which has meant policemen going from house to house and more or less arresting people and telling them they had to go uh, to recruiting offices. Um, people are afraid to be in Russia. They now, the hundreds of thousands have left the country. Some left in February when the invasion began, some left later on after the mobilization. 
Um, there's now an enormous Russian diaspora all around Europe and all around actually the former Soviet world and Georgia and Azerbaijan and Armenia. Um, this is a catastrophe for the Russian nation. And at some point, um, both the Russian elite and the public will understand this and will come to, I hope, the appropriate conclusion, which is to end the war. I mean, I lived in Russia from 2009 to 2011, and it, you know, amazed me. I mean, there were obviously small numbers of people who, you know, did not like Vladimir Putin and either thought about, you know, escaping the country or quietly expressing their views or protesting on the streets and, you know, sizable, but not, you know, huge numbers. But a lot of people seemed just sort of ingrained in the mentality you're talking about. And that led to them either accepting or even supporting a leader sort of in the mold of Vladimir Putin. I mean, are, are you saying that that is what is changing because of something happening now, this conflict that a lot of people inside Russia see as disastrous and, and catastrophic and, and they're going to be calling for change from the inside? The numbers of people who have left the country is already testament to a profound change. You know, I, 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 it's very hard to talk about public opinion in Russia because there isn't really any such thing as public opinion, as you know, if you live there. It's not as if people have political identities or, you know, that if you ask them a question about the president, they'll, they'll say they don't like him to an opinion pollster who's calling them on the telephone. Um, you, you don't have a formation of public opinion or or that kind of open participation in politics at all. People more or less accept what's been given to them and they don't question it because it's too dangerous or it's not worth it or it seems like a waste of time um, or you know they, they just don't see any other alternatives. Um, so one of the effects of the defeat, and by the way, and the Russians are losing in Ukraine and it's because of this loss, because they expected to conquer Kiev very quickly and they didn't. Um, that you've had this shift. I mean, I would say it's more of a shift in mood rather than a shift in politics. And I can't, I can't predict exactly when it will produce something different, but um, that's really the only long-term hope for Russia. I could hear some Ukrainians um, thinking to themselves, why am I listening to two people talk about the future of Russia when it's the future of Ukraine and winning this war and all the loss that Ukrainians have seen that, that we should really be focusing on. But what would you say to someone like that? What, why is why are we talking about the future of Russia and why is that important to, you know, the future of Ukraine and and you know, potentially the future of the world? So I'm very sympathetic to that view. I'm I'm I understand Ukrainians who dislike any focus on, you know, the few Russians who speak out or the few Russian organizations that are trying to do something. I mean, I, I can understand why they find that frustrating because it seems like people are doing it in small numbers. But whatever happens, however the war ends, um, Russia doesn't disappear and it doesn't go away. Um, and it's Ukraine's neighbor <laughs> forever. And so thinking about how Russia can become just a little bit more civilized, how it can become um, at least a country that respects borders, you know, at least a country that acknowledges the existence of the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian nation, which it has not up until now. Um, even that could make an enormous difference to the future of Ukraine and the future security and prosperity of Ukraine. And so I do think it's worth talking about, um, you know, about what what a better Russian future might look like. You know, I had this moment, this really emotional conversation in April when I was in, in Georgia, in Tbilisi. Um, a, a woman had had left Russia, gotten to Georgia. Um, she hates Vladimir Putin, hated what Russia was starting in Ukraine um, and felt so 
isolated and judged and hated by so many Georgians she was coming into contact with. And she's telling me about this on the streets of Tbilisi. And I, I'm like, I don't even know what to think because I, I love Georgia and I want to fight for the rights of of Georgians. And the idea, you know, that's a country that, that has had some of its territory invaded and taken over by Russia. And for them to be scared that maybe Putin is sending Russians in as spies, I mean, who knows? Like just to 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 really be uncomfortable with sort of Russians coming into their country. But at the same time, it's like this war was not her fault. And I felt this real sympathy for her saying like, I'm getting out of my country, please give me a safe space. That's a real tension right now across Europe. And, and I wonder like to what extent should people hold Russian citizens accountable for this this horrible act by their leader? I mean, we held Germans accountable for the Nazis, and we we still do. And the Germans, as a nation, came to conclude that they were accountable. And after the war, began to talk about themselves as accountable in that way. And there were a number of important German political gestures, to, you know, to that effect. There was a, um, I mean, the creation of the European Union itself was a kind of gesture. You know, the Germans saying, right, we want an, you know, we want an economic union with France. We don't want to invade France anymore or think that way. Um, and so I do think Russians should think about themselves as accountable. And they, ordinary and average people, do play a role in shaping what happens next, whether whether through just talking to their friends, whether through participating in demonstrations, whether through working for uh, organizations. I mean, there, there's some really brave Russian organizations. There are, you know, there are ways they can participate. I mean, I you know, I, I can imagine the agony and the discomfort. Um, and I've had this conversation with Russians who live in Latvia recently and, and with Russians who live in Vilnius. Um, they also, you know, they're also treated with some suspicion by the people around them. Um, but for the most part, I think they're coming to understand why they're seen that way. And they, um, and they understand they, they play a role in changing that. What role, though, can can they play if, if you're living in a country where if you really speak out and join organizations that are, you know, labeled as foreign agents that you could end up going to jail? I mean, what, what is the message to, to Russians that, that it's worth the risk, that if you want true change, it's worth risking your future, it's worth risking arrest and imprisonment? I mean, some people have taken that risk. There are Russians who've gone back home to be arrested. You know, Alexei Navalny is one. Yeah. Um, there, 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 there are people who've deliberately gone to jail because they say, I, you know, I can't bear the idea that, you know, years from now they'll say nobody went to jail. I mean, so there, you know, there are protests. There are things you can do. You can, you can speak to people. You can, you can help people refuse to join the army. There are legal paths to doing that. Um, you can work together with mothers of Russian soldiers. I mean, there, are, you know, I, I don't want to um, exaggerate. The possibilities, but there are there are things you can do. There are things you can say. There are conversations you can take part in. Um, you can you, you know you you don't have to go along with the with the system as it's been created. Volodymyr Zelensky, the 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 president of Ukraine, said you know Russians should not be getting visas to escape their country into Europe, as, as he put it, because they should live in their own world until they change their philosophy. Um, I, I mean, is that in line with your view? It's certainly, I understand why he says that. You know, the Ukrainians feel very strongly that they changed their country. Um, they mm. changed it first in 2005 and then in 2014, that, you know, a system of kind of kleptocratic autocracy was was rising in Ukraine. It was mostly imposed and funded from the outside, from Russia, of course. Um, and they feel they 
overcame it. They overcame it through the Maidan, through the protests, but also through social movements around and across the country. And they now have a certain amount of contempt, um, or not contempt is maybe the wrong word, or anger for Russians as well as Belarusians, in fact, who are unable to achieve that same kind of change. Um, so I, I I do see why Zelensky says that, and I'm I am sympathetic to that. I mean, it is true that it's harder in Russia that the violence, the level of violence, is much higher. Um, that the Russian elite is much more um, is much wealthier and much more I don't know barricaded behind its you know behind their houses and their and their estates in the country and it's much harder to to affect change and it's you know simply the fact of Russia being an oil and gas economy to a far higher degree than Ukraine meant that they have this source of the elite and the and the 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 totalitarian state has this source of funding that that the Ukrainian oligarchs never had um so i, I i'm sympathetic to to zelensky's to zelensky's view yes let me ask you a, a proverbial question, but one that one that's important, especially because there are debates, you know, here in the United States about, um, you know, whether to and how much aid to give to Ukraine. You know, we, you and I are talking about the future of Russia. We're talking about this conflict. We're talking about the loss on both sides, um, particularly Ukraine. Americans who say, I care deeply about those kinds of things, but I care more about my family's needs here at home. Why should Americans care and see that there are broader stakes here? The fact that Ukrainian and Russian politics have infiltrated American politics should be a kind of clue to people. Um, you know, why was Trump impeached the first time? Why was he so? Why was he involved with strange people who were trying to get him to, if you remember, get him to blackmail the Ukrainian president to give him some dirt on Joe Biden? You know, you know why were why were the Russians you know supporting Trump's presidential campaign? Um, why is there so much Russian money hidden in real estate in New York and Florida? Um, how is that money used to affect our politics? You know, why were the Russians interested in influencing the NRA as they, as they were? You know, why did they have agents trying to infiltrate? I mean, the the point is that the you know we are not isolated from the rest of the world, and the autocratic powers in which you could include others. You could also talk about China. You could talk about Iran. You can talk about other states um, as, as well, but the autocratic powers are interested in influencing us and harming our democracy. They are interested in harming the democracies and in shaping the way um, politics works in Europe, which is our primary and most important trading partner, and the Europeans are our most important allies. Um, you know, they have to be, you know, they have to be defeated at some point. And we are lucky, frankly, that the Ukrainians are willing to fight the Russians on our behalf. Um, they are willing to push back against the that empire, which is aiming at undermining not only Ukraine, but Europe, and which has, you know, frankly, megalomaniacal designs on the world and on us. Um, and so, you know, drawing the line somewhere, saying that we will defend um, democracy in Ukraine is costing us much less than it's costing the Ukrainians, frankly. Um, and in you know, in the long term, it makes the world safer for American business, for American travel, um, and maybe even for American democracy itself. Okay, uh, Anne Applebaum, stay with me. Uh, we're going to come back in just a moment, bring in the rest of our panel, and we're going to all talk about uh, democracy in the world. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. 
We are back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, co-founder of Fearless Media at the Center. On the left, we're now joined by Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And on the right, Sarah Isger, lawyer, staff writer at The Dispatch, former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. And we have our special guest still with us, historian, author, staff writer for The Atlantic and Applebaum. Um, I, I want to sort of pick up where we were talking, and and Anne, uh, I feel like I learned more about this conflict um, uh, than, than I have from anyone else. Um, and we were we were sort of talking about the stakes that Americans should see. And Sarah, I, you know, you're, you're starting to hear beyond murmurs now, but actual statements from Republicans saying, uh, you know, that that whatever's happening in Ukraine, the United States and American taxpayers should not be pouring more money into that conflict. As you were listening to Anne make the case, like, are there are there Republican voters who are skeptical but could be persuaded by things like that? Or, or is there a real risk here when you have, you know, a House that's now going to be led by a Republican, Kevin McCarthy, who has questioned the need for aid to Ukraine, that aid is going to be stopping at some point? So I want to, I guess, walk listeners through at least my views of the political right right now on this issue you still have the majority of the Republican Party that is not isolationist, that supports Ukraine, and that believes that there is an American interest in defending Ukraine to some extent. Um, and you know, I think that's a debate going on that the country as a whole. That's sort of the normal debate. You know, you don't want boots on the ground, but we should send aid. You know, that that focus. And then within the large, the substantial minority of the Republican Party, you have those that think we're providing too much aid to Ukraine. But I want to divide that group as well, because there's the isolationist crowd who's, as you put it well, why am I sending money over there when I have problems here? That's the simplest isolationist um, explanation, right? That, I think, is still a large part of that other, you know, not quite half of the Republican Party. But then there's this other very virulent part of it. This is the idea that, you know, Zelensky's a madman. He's trying to start World War III. This is about regime change in Russia. Don't be fooled by the propaganda that you're hearing, the pro-Ukrainian propaganda. And that's really taking hold on the right as well. It is nowhere near a majority, but it's an increasingly vocal minority. And what do you, what do you make of that? So that group of people, and there's a version of that on the left as well, and there's a version of it you can hear in a lot of European countries, are getting their news and information about Ukraine directly or indirectly from Russian propaganda. Um, there has been a Russian campaign, I mean, goes back years actually about Ukraine, but it's obviously stepped up during the war to try and depict Ukraine in exactly those terms, you know, that either Zelensky's a madman or that it's World War III or that um, Ukraine is a, is a corrupt hole and that it was really the Ukrainians who should be blamed for the Russian interference in the 2016 election and, and et, et, et cetera. Um, and they are very good at producing, um, you know, they have, a, they have a lot of influence. I should say they have one of the oddities that's never been explained to me is the degree to which some someone from that world is influencing Tucker Carlson. Um, he sometimes says things on television that are not common knowledge, you know, that he mentions specific people in Ukraine or specific actors. 
um, that I can only have come from someone with a lot of knowledge of the situation from a, who is feeding him Russian lines about the situation. So there's a lot of uh, Russian attempts to influence that part of the right, as well as, as I said, a part of the left. And um, sometimes they're successful. I mean, I think that's, a, that's certainly a big part of the explanation. Mo, what can we do to be less vulnerable to that kind of propaganda that Anne is describing seeping its way into our into our media and discourse? Oh boy! Um, <laughs> Glad that went sorry to, Mo. to put that on you. <laughs> this is where we start to see some of the fragility in our own democracy here, with the spread of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda being mainstreamed at scale in a digital era at, a, at the same time that we are calcifying all of the echo chambers and filter bubbles that we live in. We're making it incredibly difficult to sift through fact and fiction and perception. And I fear that it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's not limited just to how we look at Ukraine. We dealt with this and are continue to deal with this in face in, in, in the face of the single greatest external threat to the United States and the globe since 9-11, and that was COVID and the pandemic with misinformation, disinformation, um, actually divide further dividing us. We as a country typically come together and unite when we're faced with a great external threat. We only got more divided when faced with the threat of COVID. And so I, I think there's there, there are a lot of places we need to look to address this uh, to address this issue. The role of the media, the role of the big tech platforms, the way algorithms are written today, uh, and frankly, a certain degree of civic and media literacy in our schools that is just not there. Um, you know, I do fear that that this problem is only going to compound. It's not limited to the United States. We are seeing this problem in all Western-style democracies right now. And Putin in Russia and Xi in China, the more authoritarian regimes have learned how to shift the theater of combat to that space. And they're, they're playing it masterfully. This is where our leaders need to really focus their attention, I think, in, in the coming months and years. Well, I mean, Anne, this is something you've written a lot about. Um, and, and you wrote in one of your recent columns, there's nothing inevitable, nothing genetic, nothing predetermined about any nation or its government. And you said that the reality is the state will eventually adjust to society. And it it makes it sort of terrifies me as we're talking about this because if if society is what we're experiencing that that people will believe propaganda um, that that truth is no longer just one truth how does the state adjust to that and how will our country change if if that is society we have already adjusted um, we already have different kinds of people in politics than we used to have. Um, you know, if Hollywood movies produced Ronald Reagan, then um, you might say that um, reality television produced Donald Trump. Um, and some of our, you know, our, our leaders in the future may be produced by the kinds of conversations that we have on social media. I mean, there's a 
the way in which people talk about the world and the way in which they interpret the world and they interpret it through the lens of some kind of media um, affects who we choose as our leaders. So, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that point I was, the, the, the quote was actually about democracy as opposed to autocracy and autocracies, you know, the state dictates what it will be. And in democracies, you have a, a more flexible system. But unfortunately that, yes, that does mean that the um, the nature of American conversation and the nature of American public life will will be reflected in the in the kinds of people who run the country. I mean, um, but that's always that's I mean that's cliche. It's always been true. I mean, you you wrote a book called Twilight of Democracy: The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Are, are we seeing that in the United States? Is that the is that a path that we're sort of on, even if we don't realize it totally? On the path again makes it sound like there's a trajectory. You know, there's an inevitable decline, or you know that, and which I which of course I don't believe. Um, that there is a um, a part of really every country that is um, would prefer an autocratic system that dislikes the cacophony of public life, um, that prefers there to be a single leader and a single message and a kind of homogeneous society. Um, that has always been there, and we've always had it in the United States, and we've always had it everywhere. Um, and it's one of the things that the founding fathers knew when they wrote our constitution, this is what they were talking about. They were worried about democracy collapsing into dictatorship because of demagoguery. It's always been there. It's always been a threat to democracy. At times it's been higher and at other times it's been lower. Um, and we are living in a moment when, when yes, the appeal of a certain kind of autocracy in the face of unbelievably rapid social and political and demographic and informational change is all around us. Um, we are we 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 do see that. I mean, I, I would say, you know, but again, it's not a, you know, it's not an it's nothing inevitable. Um, I mean, I think the result of the last midterm elections in this regard is very interesting, um, in that quite a few of the people who were running on openly autocratic platforms, meaning they were running on questioning the results of elections, they were running on a kind of heavy hint that a they might help shift 2024 elections if they didn't go. In, you know, in the Republican direction, quite a few of those people lost, um, even even in states where, um, you know, where they would where they, where they were expected to win. And so that means that you know there are there has been a kind of, you know, there is some kind of resistance as well inside American society to that kind of narrative. So, you know, so it's but it's going to be an ongoing struggle that will go on for a long time and will never end because it never does end. I'm glad you brought up the midterms because it, it really does feel like the kind of seductive lure that you are talking about. And also, you know, there not being an inevitable end, but there being a lot of soul searching among people and, and what they want and what kind of leader they want. I mean, we're sort of talking about it from a, a philosophical and academic perspective. Then you look at the midterms and Sarah, I feel like that's what a lot of Republican voters just faced in these recent midterms and are facing as they sort of search their souls, think about Donald Trump, and 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 the party is just kind of going through what we're talking about. Oh, so exactly. And I wanted to pick up also on what Mo said, that this is not a purely American phenomenon. And what that means to me is that we have to look much broader than Donald Trump or specific American phenomena to explain it. For me, I mean, the 2008 financial crisis, I think, has a direct tie to what we're seeing now, again, in all these Western democracies, the rise of populism, the rise of an authoritarianism attractiveness. Um, and yeah, look, the other thing that's important about the midterms to consider here is that 
we as pundits and talkers sort of treat it as all one thing or all the other. And it's always annoyed me when, you know, the winning campaign does everything right and the losing campaign does everything wrong. That doesn't seem to be our problem this time. Instead, it's almost more like all the election deniers lost their elections and therefore we're done with election deniers. When in fact, we're looking at pretty small margins in some of these races, it came down to voters who were willing to split their ticket in a lot of these states, uh, meaning that candidate quality did matter and election denying probably did matter. Abortion probably mattered. You know, there's there's never a monocausal explanation. So I don't think we're through the wood by any means, as Anne has said. Right. And and look, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about this march towards authoritarianism in the United States through the prism of this argument over election denialism. Let's be clear, right? And Sarah just alluded to this, bringing up the financial crisis of 08. This is all stemming, I think, from a fundamental rapid erosion of trust in every major institution. If, if, if you look at any survey that measures how people, how much people trust institutions, they don't trust government. They don't trust politics. They don't trust media. They don't trust academia. They don't trust the church. They don't trust business. They don't trust Silicon Valley. They pretty much only trust the military and firefighters these days. <laughs> That's a pretty stunning collapse. And it gets worse each year. That's what I think opens the door to people, regardless of where they are on the left versus right ideological spectrum. That's what opens the door for people to exploit that. You know, I, there was a recent global survey that tested people's trust in government. And for the first time, people who lived in authoritarian regimes said that they trusted government at a higher level than people who lived in democratic countries. Now, you take that with a grain of salt, right? Because you live in an authoritarian regime and you get a phone call asking if you trust your government, chances are you're going <laughs> to respond a certain way. <laughs> but the fact that this was the first time we saw that the erosion of trust in democratic societies dipped below, it tells you something, right? It's not just about government, it's about all of our institutions. And so if we want to figure out how to stand up to that, this is where the elites have to, across institutions, have to step up and do their part to start figuring out how to regain some of that trust. And instead, they're doing the opposite. You know, the right is undermining trust in the Department of Justice. The left is undermining trust in the right. Supreme Court, all for political gain, all to win elections. It's bad. All right. Uh, we're going to have more in a moment, but I want to first uh, thank Ann Applebaum for joining us, uh, staff writer at The Atlantic, historian, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, Ann, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. All right. We'll be right back with Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy uh, to talk about uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you're listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green, coming at you from the center. On the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch. On the left, we have Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And uh, one person I really want to talk to you both about is Nancy Pelosi. I mean, as we look uh, to this next Congress, uh, you know, Republicans are going to control the House. Um, 
Pelosi, of course, uh, has said that she is, you know, not going to be in leadership, although, you know, she's going to keep her seat and represent her district in California. But it just feels like a a moment to talk about Pelosi's legacy um, and what this means for the Democratic Party and and what this means for Congress to not have her in a in a leadership role. So, Mo, let me let me start with you. I mean, I, I guess just sort of legacy as Democratic leader and and Speaker of the House. What are some of the first thoughts that come to mind? I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I mean, if, if there was a Mount Rushmore for legislative leaders. Yeah, she would be the first face up there, right? She will go down in history. Uh, up there with Mike Mansfield, LBJ, uh, amongst some of the most consequential legislative leaders for her, her ability to steer a caucus, to push through an agenda, um, both in the minority and in the majority. This last Congress, especially, I thought she demonstrated her uh, legislative and leadership skills with Democrats having the most narrow of majorities and walking into this Congress with what looked like was about to be, and actually occasionally we saw flare-ups of open warfare between the center left and the far left, and Nancy Pelosi was able to navigate it beautifully to get through sometimes messily, but she still was able to get through the ultimate objective of the Democratic caucus. She can teach a masterclass. All future leaders, minority and majority leaders, should study her tenure. Add to that just the historic nature of being the the first woman speaker for not just once, but twice, you know, for until Kamala Harris was elected vice president, the highest-ranking woman in American political history. And the message and the signal that that sent to so many people. Um, my young daughter knew who Nancy Pelosi was and would talk about her as a role model. And so, regardless of where you, how you view her politics, I think you still have to admire her for the barriers that she broke through and the skill with which she handled that job. She is truly, uh, it's going to be a long time before there's anyone like her. Perfect segue to you, Sarah. Most saying that regardless of what you think of her politics, you have to admire her. Is that true for you? So I want to start with this. Look, I was actually, you know, Googling pictures of Nancy Pelosi or maybe they were coming across Twitter or whatever. There's this picture of her at 21, 22 years old, in the White House with JFK. And there's just no question, you know, I don't know what we're allowed to say on this podcast, but, like, she's a badass bitch. Um, uh, You know, she is actually more the equivalent of Mitch McConnell, I think, than Harry Reid ever was. But, (laughs) um, like Mitch McConnell, I think she has more often than not put the advances of her political party and the politics above doing what was actually sort of good for Congress as an institution or good for the country as a whole. And I'll use one really specific example that has bothered me. It continues to bother me, which is in the wake of January 6th. I think she had the ability to do something very different there, and she chose not to. So let me tell you what. A, um, the impeachment itself— She didn't have any Republicans help draft that, make it, you know, rifle shot on dereliction of duty, which 
may have gotten a lot more Republicans on board. I don't mean a majority of Republicans. I don't mean, you know, 200 or whatever, but more than 10. In fact, several Republicans came out and said they would have joined something that was more narrowly focused, but instead what she drafted was a political document where if any Republicans signed on to it, they were basically signing on to something that was so pre-election based that if they had endorsed Donald Trump, they couldn't sign it. And so there was always this contradiction to who Nancy Pelosi was and how she uh, ran the House when she was Speaker that, yeah, I didn't like it. Is that fair, Mo? That strike you as fair? Uh, this is going to be one of those times when Sarah and I would probably end up on, in different places. <laughs> Look, I think um, it, it's fun. one of, one of, my, one of the, my favorite lines uh, from her speech when she announced that she wouldn't be running for leadership again <laughs> was, uh, I have enjoyed working with three presidents. As speaker. She, of course, worked with four, right? <laughs> she mentioned... Who could she, be, who could she be talking about? Yeah, go ahead. Right? Yeah. She mentioned every president that she worked with except for Donald Trump. She, I, I think she, you know, saw her role uh, for the past, you know, several years or for those four years of the Trump presidency as being sort of the, the last line of defense, not ideologically, you know, she kicked off her speech announcing that she was stepping down by talking about the Capitol Dome and what it represents. And 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 I think that's who she has been, that she has seen herself as a guardian of democracy. I think that is what has motivated her, particularly during the Trump years. And that's where I see a difference between her and Mitch McConnell, also a very consequential legislative leader who belongs on that Mount Rushmore of legislative leaders, but he has always, his motivation has always been driving a conservative ideology, and he does it very effectively. Nancy Pelosi, yes, tries to drive a progressive ideology, but I think during the Trump years, her role is something bigger. Saw her role as a champion, uh, as, as the last line of defense against authoritarianism, and the true champion of democracy. And I think she did that very effectively during uh, the Trump years. Wow, I'm just I'm I'm you putting Mitch McConnell on Mount Rushmore. I'm still sort of recovering from that. That's uh, <laughs> but um, if you want to talk about influentialism, then yeah. I mean Mitch McConnell holding open the Garland seat for the 2016 election alone puts him on Mount Rushmore. Well, I think that's right. If we're talking about the most impactful, the most consequential and effective legislative leaders, Nancy Pelosi versus Mitch McConnell is sort of the Super Bowl. Yeah. And he's got more of the LBJ than she does. I'll give you that, Mo. I mean, and I also agree that she was the most effective person against Donald Trump. Now, the flip side of that is that on the right, far before Donald Trump ever came into office, Nancy Pelosi was the number one fundraiser for Republicans. You could put her face on any ad and it would raise money. She became a boogeyman on the right. Um, some parts of that may be fair, but the extent of it certainly was odd. But it's it was interesting how that stopped after a while. She stopped being the boogeyman. You didn't see as many Nancy Pelosi ads over the last few elections because I think there were a lot of people out there that respected the role she was playing. The one thing is now you're going to have a, a likely Speaker McCarthy who is going to have a majority about as slim as hers was in this last Congress. Every man a Speaker, Mo. Matt Gates can now hold up any legislation. 
I don't think he's going to be able to stand up to the Matt Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens of his caucus in the way that Pelosi was able to hold the AOCs and some of the more progressive voices of her caucus who were trying to um, take the agenda in a different direction. McCarthy will not be on Mount Rushmore. He will not. McCarthy is is the true French revolutionary. (laughs) Where are my people going? I must lead them. How did Pelosi do that? If you if you look at keeping the party together as, as you're describing it, you know, keeping sort of AOC and and her wing, you know, largely together and cohesive in ways that you're saying McCarthy's just never gonna be able to do on the on the Republican side. This is one of the the greatest arguments for seniority and longevity in the Congress. She spent decades cultivating relationships with members and learning how to navigate the system, understanding where pressure points were and weren't, being an effective fundraiser for everybody. She just garnered everybody's respect and to some extent their fear when necessary. Um Nobody was going to stand up to her. No one was going to take her on. And when they did, sometimes she didn't even need to push back because the rest of the caucus would jump to her defense. That was her great strength in my view. Yeah, I mean, she had, yeah. They, they, she never had to defend herself. She's 82 years old. Her husband was just attacked viciously. I mean, there are are a lot of reasons for her to decide she doesn't want to be in the thick of it anymore as much. But also... Isn't this a person who has always done what's right for the party in moments like this? And, I mean, could this be a decision where she sees fresh leadership as helping the Democratic Party going forward in these two years heading towards 24? Or do you think this was really a a personal decision? I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I think this was probably, I, I'm not going to speak to the personal decision. Um, you know, there are some people who think that the attack on her husband may have pushed her to this. Honestly, I could see the attack on her husband pushing her in the opposite direction. But look, remember, the one time she has ever truly faced um, real clamoring within the caucus for maybe a change was about four years ago. And she said then that she only intended to stay in leadership for four more years, and then she would pass the baton. That was at a time when people were calling for some sort of a generational change. Now, I have no illusions that if she believed it was the right thing for the country and for the party to stay, she would have gone back on that pledge and the caucus would have stood with her. But I think it is a this is a turning point for the party where it's at a crossroads. And I think she sees that she can play a role supporting the next generation of leadership, guiding and mentoring the next generation of leadership instead of being uh, being the quarterback herself. Sarah, does 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 the the Republican strategy, does the Republican agenda in the House change with Pelosi no longer at the helm of the Democratic Party? No, but it's sort of like when your starting pitcher heads out and you've got the middle reliever coming in, you know the opposition isn't fully warmed up, you know? 
Um, they can throw a few stray pitches because they're they haven't been on the mound this whole time. And so I think Republicans might be able to, you know, get away with a few that they wouldn't have with Pelosi still there. Um, but, you know, again, we've talked about what I think Republicans are going to focus on when I thought they were going to have a larger majority. I think McCarthy is basically going to be paralyzed. Again, whether it's from his right flank or the middle flank of the party, any one, two people can really just hold up the entire agenda. Um, so what can they possibly get done other than investigating Hunter Biden or the Department of Justice for uh, their, you know, not investigating enough about the abortion clinic and crisis pregnancy center threats? You know, all of those messaging bills that we had talked about that Republicans could put Democrats in a bad spot, forcing Biden to veto popular stuff that went against his base, for instance, that's going to be really hard. And Pelosi has to see what a pickle Kevin McCarthy's going to be in. And maybe that factored in as well of like, actually, they're screwed and they don't need me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and to your point, Sarah, like, Within within 24 hours, right, in the first day after being called the majority, after the AP and others called the, the election results for the Republicans to take control, what was the first legislative, what was the first agenda item that they held a press conference about? Investigating Hunter Biden. Yeah. They cannot help themselves. And McCarthy, of course, might also have to, I think he will, um, institute the Hastert rule, meaning that he's not going to bring anything to the floor that doesn't have a majority of the majority. So a majority of the Republicans have to support something before he'll bring it to the floor. So with such a slim majority, he can't really even do some of those things where the two parties might agree, like a Ukraine bill or something like that, because he might not even have a majority of the majority. It's so slim. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. And we have reached that time for our famous left, right, and center rants and raves featuring pet peeves, projects from across the political spectrum. Um, Mo, why don't you dive in first today? So in the spirit of the holiday, Thanksgiving, uh, I'm going to focus my time today on a big thank you to everybody, all the young, hardworking campaign staffers who um, put their lives on hold for the last two years to be a part of this huge exercise in democracy. So many of them working in good faith because they believed in a person, because they believed in an ideology. It's a thankless job that doesn't pay well. It's terrible on your social life. You eat terribly for, for two years. And you're oftentimes looked down upon by the general public because they don't like politics. But I want to thank those people, those young people who put so much on the line to be a part of our democracy. This was a very successful midterm elections, and they all deserve credit for for being a part of it. All right. Very nice. Sarah. I was going to use my minute to read Abraham Lincoln's 1864 Thanksgiving proclamation. And I hope that some of you at least will go read that again, hopefully. But I then ran across the Butterball polling 
about different parts of the country using stuffing versus dressing. And unlike some of these other polls that just color states one way or the other, this actually dives into those nitty-gritty numbers. I'm from the state of Texas. I say stuffing and have been mocked relentlessly. But Butterball has finally given me the ammunition I needed because actually, Texas is a 4752 stuffing to dressing state. So while I may be in the minority, not by much, my dressing friends. Not by much. Wow, I say stuffing too, and I'm from Pennsylvania. Mo, what do you say? I, I didn't even know this was a question. You say stuffing? <laughs> I, I, that's that's the only correct answer. I learned so much on this show. Let me just say that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so I want to rave about um, a voice I heard on the radio the other night, and it's the voice of Delilah. And if you don't know her, she hosts a syndicated late night show that has been on for more than 25 years. If you don't know her, you haven't been going on late night road trips. I agree with you, Sarah, because <laughs> I mean, that's when I've listened to her over Many the years. Many a night, Delilah. Dark, uh-huh, Many a exactly. night. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've that's when I've listened to her. She takes calls from listeners and, you know, she's sharing, you know, they share their stories about struggling and financial troubles, abusive relationships, but also, you know, victories too. And Delilah just, she listens, she gives advice, and then she dedicates a song. And I've been on so many of those very road trips that you're talking about, Sarah, listening to Delilah. And I was on one the other night in a a horrible rainstorm leaving New York City. She was talking to a woman who works with troubled youth all day and always listens to Delilah as a reset before she goes home to her own family. And you know, I actually got the chance to interview Delilah once, one of my favorite interviews of all time, and she told me she considers herself a companion. I'm there to say, you know what? You're going to make it through this. The kids are going to be okay. I know they've got cavities. I know the washing machine broke down. That's okay. You're going to make it through. That's how she describes her job. And I mean, listening, really listening to someone's problems and offering the kind of reassurance that makes someone feel like you actually care. I really wish there were more of that in our politics today. All right. That's all the time we have. Uh, I want to thank Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, and also Ann Applebaum. Uh, Left, Right, and Center is produced by Laura Dine Million. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. The show is recorded by John Meek and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Thanks for joining us and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 